Good evening, good evening. Welcome to Politics Wednesday with the Soweton and the Exchange. My name is Sam Mkokeli. Tonight we take a look at our economy. Uh, it's not a great, uh, exciting, positive, confidence-boosting conversation, but it's about our reality, really. We have top economists, really prominent economists. I'm sure you all know them. Uh, Isam Tlanga, Alexander Forbes, Mamkete Lijane at APSA, CIB Division. We will talk to them about the latest trends in economics, their own writing. They've written some very uh, interesting columns uh, recently. Mamkete uh, in Business Day, talking about how gloomy things are and how difficult this particular year has been. And she zones in on one of the interesting stats I always follow, the youth unemployment, and she breaks it down in a beautiful, simple language. Uh, about uh, four out of five people under 24 who want jobs and cannot get jobs. And then we go to uh, Isa Mklanga. Isa writes for the Sunday Times and uh, the Business uh, Times and the regular writer there. He talks about uh, monetary policy and uh, various uh, scenarios uh, for inflation. And that affects a number of things that basically could be food, and, and a number of uh, other goods and how difficult uh, it is for central bankers uh, to make a decision, especially that uh, they be looking into an area or period uh, that is not clear at all. Both economists have opined on a number of issues, uh, the basic income grant, what has to be done to save South Africa, uh, to boost our economy. And I see in the room we have one uh, little also a, a regular on this uh, platform. My friend, UCBS Makaiza, I saw him earlier in the day uh, moderating a fascinating conversation about trade in Africa and China. Uh, welcome, everyone. Uh, thank you, uh, regulars like your Tebuho. Uh, Tebuho Kass is with us, has always uh, been. And Tito uh, Mbaweni, governor of the Reserve Bank, I hope he comes in and he shares some wisdom uh, with us. And uh, also... Uh, maybe not a uh, rule from the grave, and uh, but uh, hopefully we get uh, uh, some inputs uh, from uh, Governor Number Eight, uh, Didon Boweni, former Finance uh, Minister. Welcome uh, everyone, and a quick sound check. Uh, Isa Mklanga, some call him Isaiah. I've checked this actually with him. I often feel com uh, not comfortable because I thought I was getting it wrong. He tells me that his name is Isaiah Mklanga. Thank you uh, very much, guys, uh, for joining us. And uh, let's start uh, with uh, Issa. Issa, uh, take us through your thinking around, uh, one, uh, the outlook for uh, interest rates. And also I'm keen to hear you talk about uh, GDP and the latest uh, numbers. And I hope to actually draw one delay into this uh, conversation at some stage. Uh, can you just uh, give us your opening thoughts around this? Thanks, thanks, Prasem. Perhaps it's uh, quite useful to briefly just look at what has been the year that we are going through that is almost coming to an end. Uh, but the way that is coming to an end, it's, it's coming to, you know, with uncertainty of this Omicron variant. But, uh, you know, sometime in November, almost this, this time last year, 
I, I wrote a business day piece, uh, a column where I, I started to see the signs of an improving economy globally. And I said, you know, things are starting to, to look much brighter uh, going forward. Quite a number of people disagreed then, but the signs were there because the global economy was improving. We also had a pickup in commodity prices that helped quite a lot. And the reopening of economies globally, that also improves, uh, improved our, our, you know, demand, uh, external demand from our trading partners. Fast forward to the budget in February. It was quite a good budget. Uh, you know, we had about 100 billion rand extra tax revenues compared to, you know, what was forecast previously. And that came in quite handy to try and put our fiscals into a, a more sustainable path relative to where we were coming from. We had the second wave uh, of COVID infections, the third wave of COVID infections uh, during the year, uh, which was also exacerbated by the July riots or the looting that we saw in, in, in Durban and parts of Houting. That's now showed up in the Q3 numbers of e economic growth that were published yesterday by State SA. Uh, compounding those uh, negative uh, you know, developments, we had load shedding, one of the worst that we have seen since 2008, uh, you know, at some point in time, getting stage, stage four for a couple of days. Um, all those were quite negative. But the global environment, despite the local negative news, it has been quite positive. It actually helped South Africa. So we had a lot of these tailwinds, strong growth, commodity prices, still supportive monetary policy globally, and also fiscal policies, which continue to support the global economic recovery, coupled with the reopening of economies as infections uh, started to, to, to decline, which meant that we could get some boost from tourism, international trade also, uh, which is quite visible if you look in terms of our trade balances and current account balances, which have reached quite a, a you know, multi-year record highs and helping our currency to remain relatively strong uh, you know, uh, compared to, to other, other currencies. So this is the environment that we have gone through in the year. Uh, you know, which, which has been quite good despite the negatives that we are seeing and that we have seen. Um, growth will end up somewhere between 4.5 and 5% uh, at the end of this year. But what we need to be mindful of, um, you know, especially considering that sometimes when we see all these you know, high numbers, we tend to be overexcited. About 2.8% or 2.8 percentage points of that is just base effects, which means if we had 0% in terms of quarter-on-quarter -quarter growth from the first quarter of this year to the last quarter of this year, growth will still come out at 2.8% simply because we come from a deep negative last year. So actual growth because of expansion in the economy is not that great, um, you know, even as we say growth will expand close to 5%. That's where we're coming from. Now, to, coming to your question with regards to our, you know, what we foresee monetary policy, uh, you know, uh, uh, going, going forward, it always, we always start with assumptions or expectations for the global environment and global monetary policy, particularly the U.S. Fed. They have signaled, you know, reduction of quantitative easing or the asset purchase program, $15 billion per month beginning in November. And the market is now expecting perhaps it might be fast-tracked and end sooner 
with the first interest rate, uh, interest rate hike priced in for June next year, if you look at Fed fund futures. In that environment, it would signal to us that global monetary policy is now adjusting. And we've seen it in other emerging markets that have started to hike interest rate already in January. Quite a number of them have been hiking. Um, even when you look in November, about 21 central banks in the emerging market hiked interest rate, including our own, the South African Reserve Bank, by 25 basis point. You know, if we look historically, subsequent peaks in interest rates for the Fed has been lower than the previous peak. So that would say to us, if the trend continues, we shouldn't expect a very steep interest rate hiking cycle, particularly if we take into account that we have a number of almost many countries that have increased debt in order to finance uh, you know, spending on health, but also fiscal stimulus that we have been seeing across the world. So we will sooner rather than later, if we see an aggressive hiking cycle, we will see countries go into debt distress. Already a number of African countries have approached the G20 and some of the creditors to say, can we suspend some of the payments in terms of our, our, our interest costs? So that already tells us that there are a lot of pressures that are in the system that will you know, act as brakes as far as interest rate hikes are concerned, which is why in part, uh, you know, in some of the columns that I've been writing to say, perhaps the sub has been a little bit, you know, um, uh, too quick to adjust interest rate, given that we still have quite a bit of uncertainty. Um, we, we, we knew we were going into a fourth wave of COVID, but we didn't have any idea how bad it's going to be. We still don't have an idea of how bad it's going to be. So it would be, you know, it would make sense to say, let's see the data, let's see hospitalizations, let's see the severity on disease, let's see if there is going to be a need to impose some lockdowns on the economy uh, uh, to try and limit that transmission and, and reduce the burden on hospitals and see what is the impact going to be on the economy, on jobs, before we can start to adjust interest rates. But also, if we look in January, uh, before the budget, we have a number of risks. Uh, I'm sure, uh, you know, uh, Governor Mboweni is here. He, he would know the January meeting is always quite difficult. Uh, you know, we have the budget in February. You have no idea how it's going to, you know, to, to, to look like. And as a result, you, you might want to wait and see if we're going to get some help from the fiscals as far as ensuring fiscal sustainability, uh, 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 you know, to make sure that those long-term interest rates will likely to be stable given uh, sustainable fiscals. If you don't get that, then it means there's also pressure on monetary policy. That's why, as, you know, Governor Lesecha used to say, you know, the first you know, fiscal policies, the first monetary policy decisions you make. If you don't have a sustainable fiscal, it's going to be quite difficult for monetary policy. So at this point in time, we have quite a number of risks. Omicron variant, we don't know how it's going to end up. In January, we have the ruling party's January 8th statement. We also have the State of the Nation address, which gives a broad framework of what the macro uh, you know, policy is going to concentrate or focus on. They may not be explicit, but it does, you know, give some direction as far as the macro macro policy focus is going to be. And then we have the February budget, which is quite key. Quite key, especially if we consider that the MTBPS 
did not make commitments on two big areas. One, the extension of the COVID grant, given, you know, Omicron's likelihood of having a damage on the, on the economy and jobs, but also taking into account the number of jobs that have been lost in, in, in the third quarter. It, it, it is quite instructful to expect that there is going to be some extension uh, of the COVID, uh, you know, uh, relief grant uh, when it comes to an end in March 2022. The second one uh, is the wage settlement with public sector employees. It did not, the MTBA did, did not commit to, 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 it uh, didn't have much details on what, what level of settlements are going to be. That may actually derail some of the, uh, you know, derail the fiscal sustainability that was penciled in the, in the MTBPS. But already, if we look at the trends, it's still not sustainable. Yes, it's lower relative to what we, 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 we were told in February in terms of the debt to GDP ratio, but the trend continues to increase, which means the expenditure cuts that Treasury, you know, implemented in the MTBPS are not going to be enough to put the fiscal on a sustainable level, especially if we consider that, uh, you know, growth is likely to, to weaken quite significantly next year, sub 2% for the medium term. Pair Let me interrupt you, Isaiah. Let me interrupt you. When I come back, thank you very much for that. Uh, when I come back to uh, the fiscal side of things uh, just now, I just want to grab uh, Mamgeti for now uh, to make some uh, early remarks and some broad remarks and uh, hopefully uh, she's <laughs> in a better space compared to when she wrote her column in Business Day. It's beautiful. It's well written. It's clear. You know, I love it when economists write in simple uh, language. I mean, the, to- the topic is itself uh, depressing. I guess you can never blame her in her articulation of the gloomy outlook. Mamke uh, Deha, welcome. Um, so, you know, like when, when somebody asks about the outlook for South Africa, there are different ways in which one can cut this. Um, so you've got certain structural problems that are probably going to be quite enduring. Um, I think you'll, that's what I was talking about in the column that I wrote um, for the business day this week. Um, and then there, there, there's, there's some things that can be positives, um, but might not do much about um, the more structural issues that, that bedevil our, our economy. So it wasn't really an outlook piece so much as it was a lamentation, I suppose, um, that spoke to what we saw this year. Um, I think, you know, to, to, to explain it in a nutshell, when I started the year, I thought it would be 2021 was going to be a very difficult year um, from an, an economic perspective and a, just from a political economy perspective. Um, and it's proven to be that and, and, and then some. Um, and I suppose what I then did was just zero in on, on two issues, um, that I thought illustrated how truly, um, difficult, um, the situation is that we're in, which was, um, unemployment. And, um, and, and I, I, I said a bit about security, um, that was linked to so, um, social, instability um and and crime which are which all those three things actually are not are not separate issues to some extent um they're very much a symptom of an overarching um issue so you know when you think about the outlook for south africa for 2022 
it's difficult for me to see how those issues specifically can be dealt with or will be dealt with or how we can uh, make proper headway in addressing those issues in a meaningful way inside um, inside a year. Um, and these are not linked to, um, you know, things like GDP. Um, you know, you've, you've had a delinking to some extent. Um, they're not linked to what is happening to monetary policy uh, or the linkages to that are, are, are quite um, tenuous. So you can have um, quite a nice narrative about the economy next year um, yet uh, the political economy is probably going to remain extremely challenging, um, you know, to put it mildly. So, you know, if, if somebody says to me, what is your outlook for South Africa next year? I can, I can come to you and say, well, this is what we expect GDP is going to do. This is what's going to happen um, to commodity prices. This is my expectation. And therefore, you know, I expect X, Y, Z. But when it comes to the structural um, challenges, um, that speak um, most directly to welfare um, and well-being and healthcare um, and 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 the health of the body politic. Um, it's very very difficult to to paint a constructive story for 2022 um, or indeed 2023 at this stage. So those are my initial comments. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. Mamkut, let me just uh, uh, let's, uh, go back to an issue you mentioned. I'm really grateful that you did in the issue of uh, crime and security. Uh, you talk about uh, from the, the personal safety uh, perspective. Another side to it is this, the, the business side of things and how uh, our crime situation is getting out of hand. And I had a conversation with the finance minister recently, and he sees it as an obstacle to, to growth. Uh, he talks, for example, about these kind of gangs uh, that rock up at uh, various plants and uh, they would demand a contract. It could be a construction uh, a business and they'll go to a particular uh, camp and just demand 30% uh, of, a, of, a, of a tender or a contract. We've seen problems in places like your, uh, Richards Bay, uh, Rio Tinto are struggling uh, with uh, the business uh, environment. There's uh, various gangs who demand uh, various things. It seems the problems with uh, tender premiering are not just a problem that bedevils uh, the public sector, but the private sector, and therefore the rest uh, of the economy. So I'm grateful that you touched on this as a threat uh, to our future. Any more you want to say on the issue of security? The security issue is not new. Um, and I mean, if, if, if anecdotally, like the first time I, it finally dawned on me that we were in serious trouble was when I read Mandy Wiener's, uh, book on, I think it was, um, it was the, the whole, um, um, Bedford View Mafia, not Agliotti, who was the other guy that went to jail eventually. And I mean, I must have read that book more than five years ago. And and that's when you actually, it dawned on, on one that there was a serious problem um, with policing and there was a serious problem with organized crime. And subsequent to that, I think Mandy has written more books, um, more stories have come to light, etc. So now one um, is now looking at the news more consciously, and and you know, it, it, one can't help but uh, but accept uh, on some level that there is 
um, a serious problem with organized crime in this country. So my sense would then be organized crime does not sit only in one particular area. It tends to permeate, um, you know, the polity and it will move into any place where there is opportunity. And so the fact that, you know, you, you've got the you've got the, the issue of the Zamazamas, um, and that issue then becomes an issue um that affects um more like, you know, still operating minds. It, it it should be on some level quite quite um quite instinctive to accept that this is going to happen. And I think if you um if you look at um the 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 security there's a, there's an organization that um that does research on on security I think South African security studies or whatever the case may be they showed um that crime started to tick up in in 2012 um and has sort of like been ticking up since then so on some level where we are with respect to security now shouldn't come as a surprise um, but, you know, at the end of the day, once you have a situation where organized crime is dominant, um, it starts to to permeate throughout business. It, there's no place that is not going to be touched by it. Um, and, and, um, and, you know, you, they start extracting rents and all sorts of ways. Um, it should make sense that, you know, then a, a accommodating security costs, however, however you pay them, then becomes a rent um, on on business business activity. It becomes a rent um, on, on, on private or or, 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 or or, you know, normal people just going about their daily lives. Um, so, you know, for me, that is an intractable problem at this stage. Um, and it worries me because. You know, there are countries that operate with um, very high organized crime um, levels. Um, and, and I'm not I'm not 100 percent sure. I'm not saying this is the case, but I'm no longer 100 percent sure that South Africa can say it is not, um, you know, it, 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 it does not operate similar to, say, a South American country with huge levels of organized crime that need to be accommodated in daily life. So that that bothers me. I don't I don't have an answer. I don't know whether I believe that is the case, but I also know that I can no longer say I'm comfortable that that's not the kind of country that we live in. Okay, okay. Thank you, uh, thank you, uh, Mam Kide. Uh, Isaiah, let's come back uh, to you. I need your help and maybe to simplify the issue of growth and uh, these are big numbers. Uh, to an unint untrained eye, five uh, percent uh, is a a good number. And then uh, at the same time, the commodities boom and it's creating a windfall for taxation and money that can be used. Uh, I've seen people going uh, gaga about it and and, and I worry that uh, they are excited about a short term problem. Uh, uh, sorry, a, sh a short term uh, windfall and the commodities boom when uh, the money is at the same time already accounted for in terms of uh, the phys uh, fiscal plans. Could you just take us through and uh, maybe demystify the whole thing uh, for us in a few minutes? Maybe let's let's put it this way. If we just take a, a broad number and say the economy is a 5 trillion economy, 5% 5 is like 250 billion. That's, that's, that's the, the growth that we would expect for, for, for the total economy. But uh, a different view of that is what does this do to the quality of life of South Africans? How do they experience it? Uh, I think here we're talking about the quality of that growth. 
Um, that's one aspect that we need to actually look at. Um, if, if we just look in terms of what we have been seeing in the unemployment numbers, uh, it says something completely different, which seems to be disjoint to the 5% that we are talking about. So typically, um, if we look historical correlations, uh, 1% economic growth in real terms generate roughly about 0.4% growth in jobs. That is too low to absorb all the people that are coming into the labor market looking for jobs. So for us to actually have a declining unemployment rate, we need economic growth of at least 3% on a sustained basis. So if we continue to see forecasts that are like 2% or below, we simply say the economy is going to continue to have an increasing unemployment rate as a structural feature of its, of its progression, which is not enough. Unfortunately, we haven't seen much in terms of concerted efforts to, to make sure that we say we are now targeting growth of at least 3%, even with the, the structural reforms that have been, you know, put together from national treasury. Um, uh, you know, it only takes economic growth to just over 3% if we do implement, but we know the policy issues in the country is one of implementation. So we actually haven't understood or calculated the costs of not implementing a lot of these, uh, these policies. So yes, my, 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 really my point is we can speak of 5%. That is a one year, you know, blip given the recovery from the deep contraction that we had. But at the current moment, given the economic policies that we have and the pace of implementation, South Africa remains a sub 2% growth economy, not 3%, not 5%. It's a sub 2%. Potential growth is even lower than that, um, uh, potentially, because of the issues that we know quite well, load shedding, crime that we have been talking about, you know, the, the difficulties in terms of, uh, you know, uh, applying for, for permits for businesses and licensing for businesses, uh, you know, the issues within the transport sector, which the reforms are trying to address, but it's just taking too long for an economy that remain uh, one that produces high unemployment rate. Back to you, Sam. Thank you. Thank you for that. Sorry about uh, the delay in coming on. So, uh, Mamkede, when you talk about unemployed uh, people, uh, four out of five people under the age of 24, they are probably unemployable not just unemployed, right? You know, when you look at it, I'm always reminded about the National Development Plan in 2012 when it was released and simplified in various ways. And it had this prototypical South African named Tandi. Tandi is a, a woman in her early 20s and she's been depending uh, on uh, her parents' uh, social grant or old age grant. And the only way for her to escape uh, poverty uh, is for her to get a, a grant, a retirement grant, old age grant, when she reaches the age of 60. That's how deep and terrible the picture was in 2012 already. And we've messed it up and now we've missed uh, opportunities over the past couple of years. As uh, Isa says, uh, we need uh, to be growing at 3% uh, constantly. And the National Development Plan said we needed to grow at 5.4% uh, over the years uh, to be able to make a dent to unemployment and, and poverty. 
Now, when you go back to that stat uh, that you're using and you're simplifying beautifully, uh, what does the future hold when we have so many young people and they are unemployable? How does that make you feel? So, Sam, I mean, I'd like to speak to this whole idea about people that are unemployed and people that are unemployable. Um, those people are not, they're unemployable in the current South African economy with this That's country right. structure the way it is. I, I, and I mean, this is something that I'm, it's not a, it's not something that's based on um, some deep analysis that I have done, but I believe fully that um, if you're an able-bodied adult uh, or a human being, you're not useless. You're not unproductive. You you are not unemployable. You know you might not have a fancy education. You might not have even um, highly functional education in the current um, context. But you are you are capable of producing something. So the question is: Are you able to be employed? within the existing structure of the economy. And that's where the answer lies. And I know there's a lot of different um, interpretations that people have and other people would have a different idea. So I've seen people say a lot of the time that without education, you're not going to get employment. Um, and my answer to that is you don't need to be educated to be productive at something. Um, and if you have people that are um have a certain level of education, that is the nature of your workforce. Then you need to create the job environment that speaks to that workforce. You cannot design um, a, a, an economy for people that don't exist. So the fact that those people are unemployable is a function of the structure of the economy. And if you want those people to be employed, you can change parts of the structure so that those people are employed. You create an environment that can um, accommodate them. So that, that, is, that is my fundamental um, starting point. So when you speak about GDP growth, this is the other thing where people say, um, you know, you get GDP and then you get employment. I say, when you get people productive, then you will get the GDP that you need. So it's not clear to me that the, the, the right way to go about it is to say, grow first and then you get employment. You need to create the kind of employment that gets people working and those people will be productive and you'll get GDP growth. So, and, 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 and that's sort of like where my starting point is. The NDP, um, you know, advanced this idea that you have 5% GDP growth, et cetera, which was uh, to some extent, um, you know, dependent on this idea that you would continue to have higher commodity prices. And we all know what happened post 2009, um, past 20. 2010 was the peak in commodity prices. And as commodity prices fell off, um, that commodity-driven GDP um, multiplier disappeared and growth did not happen. And, and so once that didn't happen, then you, you were still now stuck with this um, unemployed workforce um, that, that you didn't know what to do with. So for me, I, I'm starting to think increasingly, if you look at the countries that developed their workforce, um, or develop their GDP, et cetera, um, and pull people out of poverty in a real way. Um, those are the Asian tigers, et cetera. What they did is they had employment that suited their workforce. And as their workforce became more advanced, so they moved up the value chains. It's not clear to me that South Africa can achieve um, growth, sustainable growth any other way. 
um, and sustainable employment any other way and um, stable um, social social a stable social structure in any other in any other way of course you know the question then becomes so what do you do um, about these people um, and people talk about industrialization and and I mean there's a lot of ideas out there um, my sense would be at this point I actually don't care what you do just do something um, it feels to me that there's been a lot of talk um, and there hasn't been enough action that speaks to restructuring the economy. Um, but, but so I might, I might be wrong um, about this. I might, there might be stuff that's happening that I'm unaware of. Uh, but that for me is, is where you need to start because when you have this many people with very low education levels, um, that, is, that is also an outcome of policy, by the way, um, when you have this many people that are unemployed, um, you know, the only way you can address this is to lean into that in a very real sense, in a very deliberate sense and solve for um, for employment directly. Brassam, can I add something to, to Mam Katie's points? By all means. Uh, I, I think uh, there's also the view that uh, is currently being debated that government needs to create jobs. Uh, through some form of a stimulus, which might be possible. But I want to make two points. First, you know, if, if you look at almost all economies uh, that are functional properly, government is not responsible for the majority of jobs. It's responsible for a very small proportion of jobs. The private sector, businesses, are the ones that create jobs. So the idea that we are going to have a government that is going to create massive amount of jobs that reduces the unemployment rate on a sustainable basis is not supported by any empirical evidence or experience in, in many countries. As a short-term measure, yes, it can you know, relieve the unemployment issues, but not on a sustainable basis. Now, if you look at the businesses that are creating employment, no one sets out to start a business with the sole purpose of creating employment. We, we, we don't, that's not how business people think. They start out to produce a service or a product which they can sell at a profit. In so doing, they require labor as an input into that process. And then they go out to, 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 to employ people. That's how employment is generated. It's an outcome of the growth of businesses that can provide services and goods. So what should government do in this environment? Its job should be to make sure that it creates the conditions and environment that can facilitate the creation of many small businesses and the growth of those businesses. And in that growth lies job creation. Thanks, Prasen. Back to you. Thank you, thank you, Issa. And uh, we're about to get uh, Didumbaweni, struggling to get him on here, but I'll do whatever it takes with the help of my colleagues at the Sowetan to uh, get him on. Governor, hang in there. I'll uh, yeah, fly over to Makhobaslu uh, if need be, but we'll get him on uh, just now. So, Issa, Mamkede, please, I need you to put on uh, the finance minister's shoes. I don't know whether they Didumbaweni's shoes or Inokurungwana's shoes, or you put on his uh, put yourself in, in their shoes or put on one of, uh, you know, Kurungwana's hats and think 
uh, early next year, he has to make uh, the budget announcement, clear uh, path for us over the next uh, three years uh, or so. What does he do in the context of all these structural problems you've laid out uh, beautifully? As well as how does he help uh, the vulnerable? Uh, there's the talk of a basic income grant. If you were there, Mamkete, what would you do? So I think, you know, the, the, the issue of monetary policy has been spoken about ad nauseum, I think, of fiscal policy um, in various fora. And, um, you know, Michael Sachs makes a really good point that, you know, um, fiscal policy is, is disconnected from policy across the state, which creates this, um, this, this inconsistencies and, and makes it less credible, so to speak, and, and also more, more difficult to achieve over time. So the way I think about the Minister of Finance, I think about the Minister of Finance, and, and I mean, this is a very, uh, a very, a very, an, an analogy that is quite circumscribed, but I'll use it anyway. I always think about the, the Minister of Finance as a CFO of, 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 um, of South Africa. So if you have a, if South Africa is SA Inc., you've got, you know, the, the parts of the business that go and create, um, create products. You've got the production line, you've got the marketing people, you've got the, the worker bees that, that actually produce the actual widgets, et cetera. And then you have the accounting person who's a CFO who can direct finance strategy to some extent, um, feedback because finance is ultimately an information hub. It's a place where you get certain types of information. And with that information, then you decide what it is that the company can or cannot do, what kind of like activities are getting you the best, um, the best uh, production or, you know, that are most profitable, et cetera. But you, you are not the person as the minister of finance who has to go out there and actually do the work. So if you say the state's job is to create an economy that produces the revenue and then um, produce public goods, public goods are health, education, and all of these things. They're not provided by the Minister of Health. Those departments have to create their own policies, right? So the Minister of Finance, um, all he can say is, well, guys, this is how much money we have made. This is how we can make better money if you design energy policy differently so that ESCOM actually um, does not subject the country to load shedding and then your taxes are going to be higher. But he can't go um, to energy and impose policy there. He cannot go to education and impose policy there. So I think we 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 overestimate in our in our discussions um, the 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 power and the ability or, that that the. The Minister of Finance actually has in, 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 in the economy to, to a large extent. If you think about the economy not as the rents and cents, but the things that we do as South Africans every day that produce value, that then comes back um, to the fiscals via taxes and to us as welfare. The minister really has a very, very marginal role to play in terms of what we do. So that that would be my starting point. And, and, and for me, I always, I'm always... Um, a bit alarmed when people talk about economic policy and everything economics is now about um, treasury. Treasury, they're, they're accountants. Think about them as accountants. They're not the actual people that are going to do the things that need to be done. And they don't, uh, they don't decide for cabinet what gets done. So then it, it, it then brings me back to who should be the driver of economic policy. It is not Treasury. It is driven across multiple departments with an agreement um, of, of, um, of, 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 of 
cabinet. So I would then say, look closer at what is happening at cabinet, what decisions are being made, what kind of support cabinet makes as a collective around um, what should be happening from an economic perspective. Um, and, and so when I, what I'm trying to say is, at the end of the day, the Minister of Finance has, can only work with what he has. So he has a certain amount of money. And um, even though other people say he can, you know, he can generate more miraculously, he can't. Um, and, and, and that's how much money he has. And he has to get cabinet's approval around what do you do about, so you ask, how do you support the vulnerable? It is not for the Minister of Finance to decide. That is a, it's a, it's a question for cabinet to decide. So I would say, you know, if there are trade-offs that have got to be made here, if you if you have a basic income grant or if you if you continue with a 350 rand grant, it gives you very different outcomes. But cabinet has to make that decision. It's very much also a political decision. And then the question is, once you've decided on a course on a course of action, where are you going to get the money? Depending on how much you're spending, you might have to get the money from other parts of expenditure within the state. So for me, that that is not up to the Minister of Finance. So come February, I'm going to be looking very closely, for instance, at what comes out in the SONA, because the SONA sets the 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 the, the tone the for yeah. the rest of the state. So for me, that is that is the statement that matters. What does the okay. president say? Yeah, all right. Okay. So I'm gonna thank you so much. I've parked a few topics uh, from your inputs here about uh, energy policy, uh, but also uh, education. And these are very important uh, issues and the deep structural issues. And we might need another conversation, uh, another day, another another appointment uh, to be able to get into this uh, issue properly. I agree with you, these issues are quite important. And the other issues that I'm, str I'm struggling with them into supporters, I think you, as you seem to be hinting, is the reforms and how slow these reforms are. I'm not convinced that we have a real reforms and we have one or two issues. Uh, Issa mentioned uh, the issues around um, uh, ports and uh, the work uh, Transnet uh, is uh, doing. But Issa, let's get your take on what that budget and the thinking around uh, that uh, budget. I've lost Dumboweni uh, on the side here, but I'll try and catch him whilst Issa comes in. Issa, over to you. Thanks, thanks Prasem. I think Mamukete has already touched on the, the most important aspects of the budget. There is obviously a certain amount of money that government has from our taxes and the taxes of corporates. And also there is a certain level of borrowings that is sustainable that a government can, can go and, and, and borrow. I'm deliberately saying government because there is a tendency to think that national treasury makes these decisions outside of government remits. So I'm saying government can borrow uh, deliberately because uh, Treasury would have. Yes. Let me interrupt you. I know you're going to kill me for this. I've got the governor, found him, and he's probably sitting in uh, Mahuba's kloof. And how many uh, cloves of, uh, of garlic have you got in your hand, governor? Uh, about 10. Oh, my God. Good evening. Good evening, Dedim How are you doing? Um, very well, thank you. This is a new thing for me, so I'm, I must apologize for uh, my tardiness in getting through. But I, 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 I will learn. 
That's all right. That's all right. Don't don't worry. Don't worry. Thank you for joining us, eh, Governor. Governor, any inputs from you? But I'm keen to hear about you and about uh, production and what is it that we do uh, with uh, our economy beyond uh, these uh, great things that we often talk about. I think Mamket is actually uh, driving us away from uh, being uh, romantic about fiscal policy and trying to solve everything through uh, what uh, the national treasury does. Uh, your input, please. Um, I, I hope everybody can hear me. Uh, um, okay, thank you very much indeed. Uh, I was saying to uh, Sam that this is a new thing for me, I'm learning, and therefore I uh, um, uh, did not miss much. I was listening, but I, you know, I couldn't get that uh, request button to allow me to speak. Uh, but I'm here now, I think that's what matters. I, I think the inputs which have been made so far have been great inputs. And, uh, you know, I could not find anything to disagree with. I think uh, very good uh, contributions to the conversation. But can I just take us two steps backwards uh, for us to try and have a, uh, a kind of a, an overall uh, view of this African economy? And I you know, classify myself sometimes amongst the monetary economists, but <clears throat> I think fundamentally I'm a structural economist um, in addition to being a developmental economist. Structural, what do I mean by this? So very quickly, um, I think when one looks at the South African economy, one must say, what is this thing? What is this economy thing? So structurally, we're talking about mining, we're talking about agriculture, in fact, mining and quarry. We're talking about agriculture, we're talking about heavy manufacturing and light manufacturing. We then talk about transport and logistics, because from production, whether it's agriculture, ZZ2, uh, tomatoes, we must then talk about taking the products to the market that's transport and logistics, logistics where we transport goods and we store them and make them ready for the wholesale trade and the retail trade. We're talking about um, uh, the tertiary sector, which is uh, banking, uh, uh, finance, uh, health services like discovery. Uh, we're talking about um, insurance and so on. And then we talk about the imports and exports. Exports, what we produce and export, imports to try and uh, beef up those things that we can't uh, produce in the country, but which are in the demand equation. So here we are. What do we mean when we say economic recovery in the structural economic analysis? What's happening to agriculture, which is what one deal is involved with, what's happening in mining, and so on. And we saw in the uh, third quarter results that uh, uh, mining, manufacturing, and so on uh, were in serious distress. So when we talk about then the role of the state in the economic recovery, we need to look at it, in my view, from a structural point of view. 
What is it that can be done, not just by the government, but in the structure of the economy? What are the mining, agriculture, and so on uh, forces that can uh, do? And I think that uh, we should not uh, be too. We ex experienced a very deep, almost vertical um, uh, collapse, or not collapse, uh, um, uh, vertical um, uh, downturn in the economy due to COVID. But even pre-COVID, we, we were already in a difficult environment. So we went into that dip, and then we experienced what looked like a, a, a V-shaped recovery. Uh, but economies like all of you would tell me that uh, that had to do with the base effect uh, from a low end coming up very sharply. And now we're back to where I think the uh, economy should have been. So the contraction of 1.5% that we saw really is a base effect washing out through the system. And then uh, from the second quarter of next year, we'll have a very clear view about what the potential economy, uh, potential output of the economy is. And we really have to focus on those key structural uh, sectors I mentioned, agriculture, mining, um, manufacturing, um, and then obviously the tertiary sector, including tourism, which I'm afraid, let me put it in brackets here, has to depend to a large extent on domestic tourism uh, because the foreign sector is doubtful. Uh, let me close the bracket there. So I think that's what the focus should be. Um, what should governments do? Governments should do what governments do. Uh, focus on creating the environment that uh, um, uh, we've been talking about. But also, are there some entrepreneurial activities that they state can be involved in. The state of the SOEs must be sorted out, and this is a long-term strategy, I'm afraid. Um, uh, we can go forward. But let, for now, let's focus on supporting those productive parts of the economy, which I mentioned from a structural economy's point of view. And, um, and let, let's avoid doing the wrong things, um, uh, like corruption and so on. And let's revitalize the small towns, the support agriculture, and so on. And then I think we can be on a good weekend into the second and third quarter of next year. Over to you, Sam. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much, Governor. I'm glad you didn't talk about uh, state banks, and I was thinking you and I are going to disagree there when you started talking about state-owned uh, enterprises and entrepreneurial activity by the state. I'm glad uh, Titanborn has always been uh, very helpful uh, to me when discussing uh, economics. I must say, he actually, when he was governor of the Reserve Bank, uh, the Reserve Bank funded a program at Rhodes uh, University for uh, economics uh, journalism, and I benefited uh, from that. So I'm always uh, grateful to Titanborn and the Reserve Bank uh, for creating opportunities uh, for journalists to get trained in economics and uh, journalism. So, uh, Issa, any uh, response to what uh, the governor, governor number eight, uh, said? I'll come back uh, to you, uh, Mamukete, on the same question. Thanks. I, I think uh, the, there is a lot of an, an alignment in everything that he said. Uh, the one aspect that I would want to uh, perhaps try and probe from him if we can get a different 
you know, outcome is with regard to state-owned enterprises. They have been declining generally in terms of their profitability for years under the hands of the same government. Do we think that we have the capacity in the state to be able to turn around these SOEs so that they can deliver the market correcting mechanisms which they are supposed to do uh, uh, in the economy and, 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 and make sure that they reduce the, the overall cost of the economy? Because so far, we, we have been speaking about these things for, for many years, yet there is no you know, um, a clear solution uh, that has timelines that are quite specific so that we can get the return on investments which we continue to put from the fiscals into these SOEs. I, I think maybe he can, he can give us a sense of whether we do have that capacity now or will, will we ever have that capacity given the current body politic that he may understand much better than I do given his experience uh, in, in the public sector? Thanks. Uh, let's get that. Uh, maybe you want to respond to that, uh, Governor Mboweni, before we go to Mamkede. Yeah. Can, can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you, uh, Mr. Mboweni. <laughs> okay. I think, um, you know, I take this conversation very seriously. And uh, uh, I know some of the things I say might make headlines. but um, Don't uh, worry. It's a safe uh, space. It really is a safe space. <laughs> No, 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 no. But I, I, I do, I do give permission to people to use whatever I'm going to say. Um, so a significant part of the South African economy is state-owned. Uh, 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 railways, uh, harbour, uh, railways and harbours are very important in what I mentioned earlier as part of transport and logistics, a critical component of the economy. Um, we have the uh, Land and Agricultural Bank, we have the IDC, the Industrial Development Corporation, we have the Development Bank uh, of Southern Africa, um, um, uh, and various other state-owned enterprises. The point I want to make, though, is that if you have this arsenal, of state-owned enterprises. But the people that you, you appoint to run this do not have the capacity and capability to make them perform what they are supposed to perform. The result is going to be dismal, like we've seen now. And at a philosophical level, I want this group to understand that there is a difference and a going together between what we call capacity and capability. More often than not in South Africa, people make a confusion between capacity and capability. Capacity means, let me explain in mathematical terms. So, we need 100 people to be able to plant and, and harvest the Mboweni farm product. 100 people. That's capacity. But we need the capability of the 100 people to be able to produce 
what needs to be produced from the Mboweni farm. So capacity must go hand in hand with capability. Capability is the ability to do. Capacity is fulfilling the numbers required to produce in the Mboweni farm. So in dialectical terms, you need the combination of capacity number, capability, which is the ability to do. So what you have in the state-owned enterprises, I'm afraid, is more capacity and less capability. And that's where we are letting things down. And the state, in my view, the government, being the central driver of the state, needs to focus more on capability and less on capacity. And so there's a problem at the apex of the state administration. And that deficit in capability is what I think is driving us down. I'm happy that during my term as, as a Minister of Finance, I instituted something that we call the Vulindela, Operation Vulindela. It was a very novel thing to do within the states, I must say. And the president tried to take that away from the Minister of Finance because it was a novel idea about how to unlock and create capability uh, within the state system. And this was very important. And uh, um, at the heart of it was how to unlock structural reforms. And structural reforms would not just focus on everything, but focus on the key, uh, what I call the hard hitters, you know, the ports and harbors, railway, moving uh, 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 cargo from uh, the roads to the railway, fixing the railway system, uh, working on ESCOM and fixing, sorting out telecom. Telecom should be the biggest uh, player in the telecoms industry in South Africa. Uh, moving the telecom lines from uh, above ground to underground, uh, fixing spectrum, um, ensuring that uh, 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 competition and monopoly uh, policy is aligned, uh, and, and, and so forth, and fixing the basic things like the agricultural and land bank of Africa to support the bank, the, the farming sector. Ensuring that the land that is being given back for people functions optimally and so on. Those structural reforms issues. And now, given the, the COVID situation, the greater impetus into ensuring that uh, uh, broadband and, and uh, connectivity is in place, it's an important part of structural reforms that we need to see in our country. So. I'm saying short that uh, uh, the, the state-owned enterprises must focus less on capacity and more on capability. We need to ensure that uh, um, you know our ministers really <laughs> understand the how an economy functions. Uh, the economy functions because the the wheels yeah, are being oiled. And the they, 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 they hidden champions, the small and medium enterprises function. And I can say on this platform that now that I'm going back to the private sector, I will be championing the re-establishment of the small business development 
uh, corporation to support these hidden champions uh, in the economy. Business partners at the moment is unable to do that to the scale which is required uh, going forward. We have the banking sector, uh, finance and banking is good, but its methodology must change. Uh, I'm sorry to say that we need a kind of a VBS uh, philosophy of supporting the rural economy and so on, but not the looting that took place there. But the module was correct, but the management unfortunately let us down. Uh, and then we can go on like that. And the DBSA, for example, needs to be very instrumental in the uh, support both intellectually and materially for the municipalities and so on. We have it within our hands, I think, to get things going. I'll be writing a paper on this, and I hope that Wandile uh, uh, and Sam will come along with me. Let's, we need to write a seminal uh, developmental uh, policy paper, which we can uh, hand over to the government. They will see what to do with it, but we must mobilize the private sector. At the end of the day, the key drivers of this economy in mining, in agriculture, in quarrying, in manufacturing, and so on, is the private sector. And the Ekuruleni region of South Africa is the major industrial zone in the whole of Africa, actually. And so the mayor of Ekuruleni, the key drivers of the economy of Ekuruleni, must understand their role and place. You know, I'm about to get involved, for example, with one of the largest uh, producers of uh, electricity distributor transformers uh, in Africa. It's the largest one. And uh, Boweni Brothers is going to be involved in that, uh, you know. It's not an importer to distribute, but producing electricity transformer distributors in Ekuruleni, distributing them in South Africa and throughout uh, Africa. And this is... Uh, um, uh, <clears throat> uh, ESCOM certified producer. You know, you put the raw materials at the beginning and out there comes the transformer. And that's what Mboweni Brothers is supposed to do. That's my role in the private sector. It's private sector driven things like that which are going to reawaken our economy. Over to you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. I was about to cut you short there, uh, Governor. And you mentioned a lot of things about Ekuruleni and the mayor that is supposed to understand this thing. And considering the kind of candidates and the personalities that we've had uh, recently, I start wondering uh, if uh, I should uh, be uh, optimistic. Uh, thank you, uh, Governor. I'm coming to you, Mamkete. Before I do, I'd like to invite uh, anyone who would like to make an input uh, to put their hand up and uh, make a request uh, to be made a speaker, and we'll make sure you are given uh, the mic. My colleagues at Sowetan will uh, facilitate that. Uh, thank you, Mamkete, coming to you. Uh, you've heard what the governor had to say, a whole lot of things. I don't know which of them you came to make an input on. Yeah, no, so it's, it's just like an honor and a privilege, really, to... Um be able to speak to the to the governor and the finance minister and at some point labor minister. Oh my so god, yeah. Who's been, who's, been, <laughs> who's been around, so to speak, um, as far as economic policy is concerned. You know, um I, I just like to ask, you know, um Governor Boweni one question. So he has been involved in the state in various parts for a long time. Most recently 
as um, finance minister, a post that he vacated um, only a few months ago. So the way he's speaking and the things that he's advancing are obviously things that, um, you know, are, are, are almost common cause. Um, around what should be happening to the economy, what kind of structural reforms we should maybe look at. Even though I still think, you know, it, it's not dealing with with a deep with a deep issue of unemployment and inequality, etc. Um, you know, the, the issues that he's highlighted. So for me, it's more like an incremental view where you need a, a more reshaping kind of um, intervention. But even within that, as minister, um, as a member of cabinet. Um, he 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 was there when a lot of what he is now advancing did not happen, even though it was it was put forward by various um, people with, within different fora. And I'd like to, for him to give us a little bit of insight into why um, why that is, why we all sort of know these things, we speak about them, but they don't happen. Governor. You know, uh, I've amused myself. I hope you can hear me now. Can you hear you, Governor? Can you hear you? know, somewhere in uh, 1989, I was on a flight from Lusaka uh, to Harare. Uh, those days, uh, people used to smoke in the aeroplane, but at the back. And I was with President uh, Mbeki. And uh, so he he uh, moved uh, to the back of the aeroplane because he wanted to smoke, not a pipe, but a cigarette. So I followed him. And I sat next to him, uh, even though I didn't like the cigarettes, the smell and smoke and so on. And uh, it was a second debate I had with him. Uh, the first one was in 1985 in London, but I won't go into that now. It's in my book. Um, so I sat next to him and I said, uh, 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 Comrade Tavo, what is happening? Uh, are we going forward with this revolution? <clears throat> then he says to me, uh, Comrade Tito, I've got bad news for you. And I said, yeah, what's happening? He says uh, there is inertia in the National Executive Committee. Yeah, my eyes popped up. I said, what do you mean? He says, inertia, there's no movement. What do you mean? He says because the majority of the members of the National Executive Committee um, are still propagating a people's war. And yet, all political factors, scientific factors before us, are pointing to a negotiated solution. So there's inertia. I said, oh, okay. Um, so let me do a rejoinder to the question that was asked. I think there's a bit of inertia in the cabinet um, about the need to make the, uh, to cross the Rubicon. Uh, to cross the Rubicon means that the structural reforms that I, I spoke about when I was in the cabinet really have to be implemented. So huge. Of the matter is that I started Operation Bulindela during. No, no, not the problems, but the debates. Uh, and I'm quite uh, certain that there's a sufficient 
capability within the cabinet to get some of these things going uh, forward. And, uh, you know, I'm prepared to, uh, to have a longer conversation about this, but I think that the fact of the matter that uh, we have the Operation Bulinzela in place, uh, uh, um, uh, managed by uh, David Masondo, the Deputy Minister of Finance, and supported by the presidency, is a huge step forward. And the fact that they are already moving with the corporatization of the port and harbor in South Africa is a huge development. Fact of the matter that it's been accepted that we must move cargo from road to rail is a huge development. The fact that it is now uh, a, almost a presidential uh, push to get this uh, spectrum auctioned and out of the way so we can get proper broadband is a huge move. The fact that there's now a realization that we need to support agriculture in a big way is a huge movement going forward and so on and so forth. So, but I think there's an issue which uh, maybe me and Sam don't agree about this, which I think is a subject of the next Mahovastrov uh, discussion, <laughs> which will result in what we can call the Mahovastrov minute. <laughs> is that, you know, uh, I am convinced that without access to finance capital, all talk of empowerment is like playing football outside the football pitch. And you can do everything, uh, black people here, percentage here, blah, 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 blah. Without finance capital, it's a waste of time. Okay. Let's I am me. personally... Yeah. Yes, please go ahead. I was saying that I am, for example, sitting on a huge deposit of iron ore, but I can't finance it. And therefore, the talk about a state bank is not just a, an ideological talk. It's about the need to disrupt the current banking system and the methodology used. If you applied for a bank, banking finance, to build a house um, in Zanini, in the rural areas, they won't give it to you. Because the methodology they apply is of the old South Africa, not the new South Africa. So access to finance capital is very important. And I think in our next conversation, we should just zero in on access to finance capital. And then those of you who write in the papers can write about access to finance capital and why it is so important for black people in general and Africans in particular to have access to capital. That capital is very important in our conversation. Okay. Thank uh, you. Over to you. The governor, I don't think we needed Vulindela. If we had an, an efficient government, a coherent cabinet, you wouldn't need to move any of those things uh, to uh, Operation Vulindela. But anyway, let me grab. Let me grab. Uh, no, 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 no. Same, same. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Operation of Bulinjala is within the government. It's in the treasure. Of course. So if the transport ministry and the department were in touch with the required reforms, the energy department did not have to be driven by Bulinjala to do embedded generation. You see, Bulinjala does what ought to be done by these departments ordinarily if you had a coherent. And anyway, 
uh, kudos to you uh, for having uh, crafted uh, that. I'm sure you have to uh, uh, be nimble uh, politically and structurally to create an environment in which uh, you can move uh, some uh, of uh, these things and have uh, some uh, progress, uh, Governor. Great pity e-visas could not be done quickly. We can get uh, skilled people in the, for his visas for uh, skilled people. These things take a long time. Uh, Governor, please stay with us. I'm going to grab Songhez or Sangoza Zibi. If anybody else keen to make uh, inputs, I can see a few hands. We'll make sure that uh, you are given the mic. So I'm going to come in from another angle. South Africa's structural economic problems have reached the point where they are essentially political. And, and the political entity at the helm of the country is the African National Congress. So let me simplify this and make an example about my area, which, Sam, you know very well. The road between the N2 and Coffee Bay or Hole in the Wall or Haven is literally impassable because it has not been maintained for a very long time. That area is in the OR Tambo District Municipality. It's in KSD, which is in OR Tambo District Municipality, which is responsible for providing bulk services to residents and businesses. The OR Tambo District Municipality has been under administration for, a very, for, for quite some time. Eventually, it was put under administration because there were two administrations effectively running there because of ANC factionalism. So let me explain how this has a material impact on the economic growth that we talk about in fancy language in Pretoria and unemployment when the obstacles are political. Now, you will also know that what I am talking about is prime land in terms of two sectors of the Sarajevo economy. It's tourism and agriculture, right? As far as tourism is concerned, if you do not have piped water, as you don't have in the prime tourism areas or potential areas in Coffee Bay and all along the coast, one. And secondly, you can't even get there. The road is so bad. You want to carry your own four by four if you've got one. But it's impossible. And the municipality, because we've got a three-sphere system of government, the municipality is completely dysfunctional. The province itself has not covered itself in glory over the years also with political problems. You can make the plans all you want. This is essentially what is, is required because there is dysfunction in all three spheres of government from top to bottom. The inertia that the governor is talking about that Tabumbegi was complaining about is a crisis right now because you've got an absence of capability in parliament and an absence of capability, unfortunately, in government, in the cabinet that the governor has just left. Because what we see is a political party and parliament and political parties that occupy themselves with peripheral things that are not going to yield the result. Let me give a, a last example so I can give the chance to somebody else to give a chance. We've got to take account and responsibility for some of the necessary and other policy positions that we've taken in the past. So I'll give an example about mining. When I left in 2013, there was a backlog of four and a half thousand integrated water use licenses. If you don't have an integrated water use license, you can't affect the groundwater, which means you can't dig. So what has South Africa had previously? You can go and have a look. There have been very few 
greenfields expansions that is new production in south africa compared to other mining jurisdictions because our licensing and regulatory system takes forever to process licenses apart from it being corrupt that's the second thing so what do we need to do to solve the partly solve the unemployment problem We've got a majority of the unemployed being people who either don't have a post-metric qualification or don't have metric at all. We can look at the latest quarterly labor force survey. There is a category called needs NEET, not employed in education or training. Those are millions of people. I think it's about 10 million people. Now, these are the people we say they're unemployable. Now, let's go back again to my area back home, right? You've got tourism, which means you can train people and scale up to participate in tourism and to get employed in tourism. You also have rich agricultural land and the tradition of farming crops and livestock going back generations, centuries. We can leverage that, but we don't. And we sit here and we talk about the state bank, we talk about all of these kind of things, which ultimately are being hobbled by a political class that is distracted, that does not have the capability to imagine different priorities and policies in order to turn this economy around. Let's not kid ourselves, guys. We should not be needing people to get social grants, extended social grants, a basic income grant, and so on. We know that the people that end up in shacks that are flooded or burning, when they speak on TV, you can tell from the dialect that they're from our areas back home. They shouldn't be there. The reason they're there is because there are no opportunities. Where they come from? When there are assets that can be leveraged. We need to simplify this discussion, Sam and identify the problem for what it is. And our problem is a political problem. And until we restore capability at political decision-making, this is not inertia that the governor is talking about. It's far worse. <laughs> so that's, that's my input. The things we can do in the short term. Now, if you put in a road to Coffee Bay and to Haven and to Mtata River Mouth and so on, all of these places, we will stop talking about a, a private sector investment strike that doesn't actually exist. If you do not have a mining license and integrated water use backlog, you can't turn around and say the private sector is on strike when you are not issuing or processing the licenses. You can't walk on both sides of the road in opposite directions like our politicians and our government do. But that's what they do because fundamentally they no longer know what to do and fortunately, the governor was Minister of Labor in the first term of this government when the ANC had to implement structural reforms. He was responsible for reforming the labor market. And part of that was to bring certainty to the labor market, that to reduce the number of strike days lost to unlawful and other strikes so that we can have an economy that has got more production days per year. And we managed to achieve that, along with the other things that people criticize today and say gear was terrible. A couple of weeks, a few weeks ago, when I had a space, Duma was saying we created 3.1 million jobs. Why? Because we implemented structural reforms, reshaped the entire government, but there was a critical difference. The quality of the political decision-making was five times better than it is now. It is not going to improve. Thank you. As I can't 
I can't disagree with you there at all. I don't know if the governor, I'm keen to hear Mamkete and Isa. Please, Mamkete Isa, come in anytime. You might as well keep your mics on and jump in anytime you want uh, to make uh, inputs. You know, as long as you don't want to get Isa started on uh, this investment strike. You know, he spoke uh, at a dialogue uh, recently about who isn't uh, investing uh, in the economy. It was not uh, the private sector that was to blame. Uh, it was actually the government uh, itself. But uh, Governor Mamkete Issa, I'm coming to you if you have any inputs. And Temoho, please stay there. I'm going to come to you after this uh, round and then Dala. Dala as well, I'll get you to get the mic. Yeah, so I mean, I, I just wanted to say, you know, Sangez's intervention, I think, um, is, is quite an important one um, because, you know, issues of, of economy are fundamentally issues of politics. Um, and somebody did actually, like, I, I think people are starting to refer more to it as the political economy because it's not just the economy. And I think in South Africa, that's that's basically what it's become, where um, the politics and the economy have have merged, um, you know, quite spectacularly. Um, and we, we almost have a sense that, you know, a lot of the decisions, like I said, these are cabinet decisions that have got to be made. These are much, much higher level strategy uh, and country strategy decisions that have got to be made. Um, and they are inherently political decisions. So I agree with them on that one. Maybe I can also add to to uh, Prasongs and uh, Mamukete. True story. In the East Rand, outside, you know, a, a, a house, I collaborated with the owners of the house to manufacture aluminum windows and sliding doors. Employed about five people that I paid on a monthly basis and they never had to, to need a 350 grand from the government. The Metro Corps show up and say, this place is not zoned for business. You must close shop. So ultimately, I closed shop. The people lost jobs. Now they are queuing for 350 rand from the government. Now, this also demonstrates that we are trying to keep the aesthetics of a first world country in what is truly a third world country by some of the laws and bylaws that we have that should be repealed and really looked at. Because we say small businesses create jobs, they are you know, one of the most important avenues of reducing unemployment, but the laws that we have do not speak to that. A few weeks ago, there was a picture of a gentleman that planted cabbage outside of his yard that also suffered the same fate. How do we support these small businesses when we have these ridiculous laws that for me, if it was a government that is intentional, could, with the stroke of a pen, change that law, not, not next week, in a very short space of time and make sure that people can actually work for themselves and produce something and not require support from the government. So that, that's what I just wanted to echo Brasonezo's points to say, some of the laws that we have left here continue to protect the market for big businesses to the detriment of small businesses. The same with the 
the lease agreements when new malls have been signed, you have an anchor tenant who is a big mall, which then prevents any other player in the space. Why can't we say, you know, if you have to establish one of those big malls, 30% should be open to small players inside the mall. But we want to keep the mall clean, aesthetics of a first world country, and people do not have jobs. They have to, you know, sit in unsafe spaces where they are subject to muggings and robberies. But that's not where they can actually operate. That's not where their clients and customers are. It looks so basic, but for some reason, not the right things are being done. Thanks. Back to you, back to you uh, Prasem. Thank you, Governor. Any input? Thank you, Isa. Uh, yeah. Um, can people hear me? I've unmuted me. can hear you, Governor. Perfect. I think that uh, there are a number of uh, there are a number of issues which might be the subject of future conversations. Because it's local government, it's water licenses, it's uh, government capacity and capability, which we spoke a little bit about. It's the unemployment, uh, employment issues, um, it's private sector, and so on. Uh, so I think that we might uh, decide, uh, Sam, to disaggregate all of these things into future conversations. But for now, let me just uh, make a few comments. Uh, and I must go to the kitchen before my food burns down and Twitter um, uh, destroys me. The and 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 uh, so thank you very much for what you said about my role as Labour Minister, which I think is more often than not forgotten. Uh, why do I say that? You know, one of the most fundamental issues I had to confront as a very young enthusiastic and energetic uh, Minister of Labor in 1994 was uh, how do you uh, ensure the structural reform of the labor market in South Africa? You know, and I uh, assembled a team um, uh, to work with me on this, and we had huge debates uh, about this, and uh, Eventually, we thought that uh, we should craft a Labor Relations Act, um, a basic conditions of Employment Act, a Skills Development Act, and then uh, uh, Occupational Injuries and Diseases Act and so on. And we inserted into the South African polity a major, major structural reform of the labor market. Now, that kind of approach is what is required today uh, in the economy. But sadly, anecdotally, sadly, uh, today I went to the Labor Department office in Zanin to lodge a request for the Labor Department to uh, release the unemployment insurance uh, benefits for my former domestic worker who now, unfortunately, because I'm a pensioner has to access uh, unemployment insurance benefit. They couldn't help me. And they were rude. I was wearing a mask, so they did not know who they were being rude to. Um, 
And I was very disappointed because the offices which they occupy actually were not there in 1994. I put them in place for them. Uh, but they were rude to me. And uh, and I thought, is this what the, the public servants do to our people every day? Mm. They would even speak to a former minister of labor who found these offices for them and the former minister of finance and the former governor of the African Reserve Bank. And because I was wearing a mask, they didn't know who I was. Had I not been wearing a mask, I'm sure they would have been running around trying to help. But they chased me away, and they didn't help me at all, which is very sad, which gives you a sense of the caliber of the civil servants that we're dealing with. More often than not, we talk about the cabinet failing and so on, but it's the people who we employ who fail us. Hmm? This thing is the people we employ. You think we have employed people at the labor department office in Zanini to help our people? They're not interested in that. And then we blame the ANC for that. I mean, should the ANC have an office in the Department of Labor in Zanini? No. The civil servants who have been employed to do the job, and they're not doing the job. And today they chased away the former minister of labor. You know, they chased me away like a servant. Couldn't help me. Hmm? And anyway, let, let me leave that aside. So let me come back to the issue of local government. Well, we've just had the uh, local government elections on the 1st of November 2021. Uh, I was one of the people who were interviewing the prospective mayors in the Northern Cape. Uh, there, were, there was a very stringent set of criteria they had to meet. And I'm quite certain that the people that we eventually recommended to the National Executive Committee of the ANC were approved. I still have to receive a report in that regard. But if they were approved, I think that the Northern Cape is going to have very good uh, mayors to run uh, the affairs of the state there. I think we should try. It's very difficult to do so but to break with the past and start with the new after November the 1st. And whether it's the Amatola municipality who stole everything, including their own salaries um, in the past. <laughs> Just anecdotally, they wrote a request to me to give them the following year's allocations <laughs> because they deleted the current year. I said, eh? I told them to go and drown uh, in that, in, you know, and they hated me a lot there. But it will come back to that. Uh, local government going forward has to work. Water licenses, I agree. These have to be speeded up and everything else. But then, you know, I have begun to work on some ideas about what I call the politics of water uh, in South Africa and how the, the, the damming of the rivers in South Africa has been designed so that it denies water to the communities who are downstream, who happen to be African communities. But there's a different matter we can discuss next time. I've discussed at some length about government capacity and capability. We can pick on that in future. But let me conclude, uh, Sam, by saying that I think you have organized a very good 
uh, place for a conversation. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be part of the conversation. And But I think, you know, um, I think it was Terra Licota who once said, let us look beyond the squatter camp. Let us look beyond the squatter camp. And let's enthuse in ourselves the courage and hope for the future. And I stand in that ground, and although I'm out of government uh, by, you know, um, maybe this is a big announcement, by the end of January, I'll be out of uh, parliament and in the private sector. Um, I had, I'm having some job interviews, which are very interesting, actually. But I've already put in the bag last week a, a chairman of a listed company, uh, which is very good. So I'll be going back to the private sector um, as of the end of January. And I hope to continue the conversation with yourselves from the private sector side, but contributing to um, the success of our country. The president just said that he's going to ask me to perform one or other role in the public sector, maybe, I don't know, in one of the state-owned enterprises uh, um, so that I can make uh, Sam feel very proud that public enterprises, state-owned enterprises can also work. And when I go into that, I'll make sure that it works uh, very effectively, uh, contributing to our country. I think we should remain hopeful uh, despite the difficulties that we confront with COVID and its variants. Before, 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 Pratito, Pratito, before uh, you wish for us to be hopeful and all, I really wish they give you uh, ESCOM uh, or DINEL or something so that uh, you can age quicker I, I think, than you are. But before you no, do... I think, I think, no, DINEL would be a very good one. And DINEL uh, would be a very good one. And I'm quite certain I could turn it around. DINEL would be a good one. But it's up to them. You turn it around but, uh, how, considering uh, the, the cash crunch uh, that is a problem every no, day? It, no, I've dissected the nail upside down, uh, sideways, and I know where the problem is and how to solve it. So you'd sell a part of the nail to solve the balance sheet problem, right? I'll make sure that the order book is fulfilled and income comes in. It's very simple. There's no capacity to do any of that. They have no money to service that order book. They haven't been able to in three years. I have a solution to it. Okay. Hope. Uh, okay, okay. Uh, Governor, yes. don't go. Don't go. Just don't go just yet. I know your kitchen is calling you. Please bear with me. I want to take Tebuho. Tebuho is going to have an input, and uh, maybe it might be something that uh, grabs uh, your attention, Governor, before you go. And I really appreciate it you choosing uh, to spend the evening with us instead of a garlic cloves, uh, green pepper, red pepper, and... Uh, I, and, and no, I'll take uh, Tebuho's comment, and then I, I really have to go, and, and otherwise my food will be destroyed. Tebuho. Uh, uh, thanks, Sam. Um, uh, uh, good evening, and thanks, uh, Governor, uh, the, the Duke of... Uh, the Duchy of Makhobasluf. Daki. Daki. Sorry, the the the, the turkey. Yes, <laughs> sorry. Uh, thanks for the correct. Thanks, thanks for the correction because I've always been saying the du the duty. But anyway, um, the, my my take is based on your so on your 
argument on the uh, capacity versus cap- capability, which I fully uh, agree with, and I think it makes more sense. Um, and maybe also to say, perhaps better late than not, that the ANC has woken up to conducting the kind of interviews that you've shared with us that you were involved with in the Northern Cape, which could help ensure that it sends the right tools in the form of human tools to go and run or be involved in the running of those municipalities. Um, Because what we have observed over the past, and I still believe it is the case of our moving today, is that we've got legislators, for for example, who are not equal to the task who I believe, and I believe my, my you know, my, my, my assertion is well-founded that most of them are not uh, tuned up for the task before them, whether it's at the National Assembly level or even at local level, local municipality level, we, we find that there's a lot wanting in terms of the people that are deployed there. And it might very well be that uh, one could say, blame the ANC deployment uh, policy um, that it deploys and when it deploys it doesn't necessarily send the sharpest tools in its in its toolkit and i'll give an example we've got the issue of sme relief uh, and support which goes back to the covid relief and now recently the one that involved the 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 disturbances public disturbances in july where you'd find that government could make capacity by way of funds available to go and uh, alleviate the plight faced by small businesses. But it is in terms of the fulfillment or the execution where you find that they may not necessarily be the right people. Here I'm talking about the, uh, the uh, to use your words, the capability to be able to, to effect that which government has set aside. And the result is we've got funds that are not used for the purpose that are intended to, and some of them end up being returned back to the to the fiscals in the process still leaving small businesses um, uh, unassisted. And in most instances, could very well be that it lends itself to the business sophistication levels of the SMEs themselves, but it's neither here nor there. But the capacity uh, or the capability within government is an issue that has always uh, been applied, uh, uh, you know, a bugbear. And that could very well say that those are the perils of ANC deployment policy, cater deployment policy, which could be, ant- uh, you know, antithetical to to advancing your your argument of uh, of cap- of capability. Just lastly, on the issue of finance and capital that you raised, uh, finance capital that you raised, we twenty seven years down the line, we as blacks and Africans in particular, we have to reckon with the fact that. We are still at a black, I mean, at, at a capital accumulation phase. And it, it's not helpful that the very little capital or, or, or wealth or, or monies that we manage to amass, we see most of it squandered on conspicuous consumption. And, and I'm glad that you're leading the way by not, by living, leading a fragile lifestyle, which I think doesn't necessarily mean that we should be uh, feasting on, 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 on Lucky Star every day. Uh, and not enjoying the finer things in life, but but we seem to be more uh, uh, focused or concerned about consuming today. The Ngoku Brigade would must be there with the with the with the Kardashians of this world, um, and and I think we can mobilize a lot of capital within the communities, the black communities themselves, 
and make sure that the, the circulation of capital uh, within the communities. I'll stop there and thank you. Thank you, uh, Debucho. We'll take uh, the governor's uh, parting short and uh, Isa Momkete, please do stay with us. I'm still as strong as well on the line after the governor will try and get uh, you the parting shots as well as we prepare to wrap up if we have time we might get andala uh, and uh, one more speaker but governor no i want to know what they're going to say so hold on for them i'll speak last <laughs> thank you thank you governor okay uh isa uh, you might have a fresh ideas you wanted to to, to share uh, with us as we're wrapping up and i'm worried that we have not uh, moved to think about practical things that uh, need to be done. Songezo's input is amazing uh, in uh, allocate, properly diagnosing the problem. You know, when I listen to the governor talk about uh, being chased away at home affairs, and like sometimes we say we forget that we like we don't have a government. No, 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 no labor. Oh, labor. sorry, I mean, sorry, at, at, at labor. You know, the, the former labor minister. Thanks, governor, for that. Uh, but anyway, Issa, how do we move from here? and uh, try to make things better for ourselves and future generations. Thanks, Prasem. I, I don't claim to, to have a magic wand, and I think all the solutions that needs to be implemented are already known. Uh, government has put in place a structural reform plan in the various sectors of the economy we just need to implement. The very same thing that we failed to do over the last 20 years, we now, we now perhaps need to do it. But I guess we will need capability, as the governor said. Uh, but I think uh, we, we, we may need to also look at how do we appoint the people that are tasked to lead some of these institutions. Because so far, it seems we are not putting the best people in place to actually execute. Over and above that, I think we have not yet crafted a, you know, a, a, you know, a view of what kind of society, what kind of economy do we want to have 20, 30, 50 years from now? So as a result, we go with the wind where it goes. We're still quite uh, you know, focused on the mining sector, which is a you know, good sector to continue to exploit because it's a natural resource. But when you look at some economies, they are looking futuristic and we are nowhere close. If we think about the fourth industrial revolution, I understand there is, you know, some committee that was created for that. It's not accompanied by, you know, a, a revival or a, you know, reform of the education sector to produce the people that can actually participate in that fourth industrial revolution. So it seems like we're doing things piecemeal. You know, like uh, Mohammed El Arian says, uh, let structure do the heavy lifting, which means put some pegs of where you want to go so that when the road takes you away from them, it's easy for you to see that you are going off direction. In, at this point in time, I have no idea what kind of an economy or society government wishes the South African economy to be. So it seems like we are on autopilot. Thanks. Mamketa. Yeah, Thank you, Isa. Um, yeah, I think some, you know, we, we we talk about structural reform, we talk about all these grand plans and 
the the, the national development plan, etc. But I think fundamentally, you know, policymaking is is highly experimental. When you're trying to work with an economy, you're working with something that's very dynamic, very complex, that is influenced by things that are happening outside and inside. Um, in terms of what the right sort of policy mix is, you know, you had the sort of like neoliberal type, as they call it, I don't call it that, um, sort of push um, with policy in the mid-90s um, that succeeded to some extent and, and failed us in some ways. Um, and it doesn't matter what policy you ultimately decide to take. It's going to succeed in some ways. It's going to fail in some ways. Um, you're going to have to pivot. You're going to have to be nimble. Um, you're going to have to be dynamic. Um, and we are failing dramatically at dynamism, at responsiveness. Um, we are, I think, to some extent, stuck in dogma. We are in a space where we attach labels to things. Oh, this is neoliberal. Oh, this is the left and this is the right and this is the, the I don't know. And, and, and countries that do well have a strategy that adjusts to the conditions. They, they are, they are not married to conventions. They're not married to dogma. They do the things, um, that, that can, you know, make the pots to happen, you know, um, you know, as, 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 you know, Deng, um, you know, from China was quoted, it doesn't matter what color cat as long as it catches mice. I think we need to get to that point where we solve for our own problems. We, we, we allow solutions to generate um, from the ground up. We are responsive. We take what we need from the global context. We, uh, we, we, we do what is doable um, to solve our problem, not somebody else's problem. Um, and if our problem is that we have 50% of black Africans unemployed, that is our problem. That's the problem we need to be addressing. Um, and, and we need, we, we really do need that. And that requires, um, a certain level of not just ability because ability you can always buy, but it also requires a certain determination, um, and a political will, um, and a willingness to take risks, um, and, and that, that's sort of where I think we need to, we need to go. I'd be very happy if I saw that happening. Um, and I think it can happen. So I hope we get there sooner rather than later. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Mamkete. So as any inputs from you and we'll move to uh, the governor. Thanks, Sam. I think we need to do a couple of things. The first is we need to frame our economic and unemployment problem accurately. Uh, even if it perhaps sounds offensive. And the unemployment problem is best, uh, in my view, framed in this way. Which sectors of the economy would, upon appropriate stimulation, produce employment opportunities for people with limited or no skills? And typically, those tend to be in the primary sectors of the economy as well as some of the service industries. But... In the South African context, I think tourism and, and agriculture offer those rich opportunities. But alongside trying to create opportunities, there is also the opportunity to put in bulk infrastructure that would in turn underpin the development of those sectors. Because what you are doing is you are, you are having the right combination of government investment in infrastructure and some skills training 
in order to attract private capital. You can also do it in a way that is transformative. And again, you'll forgive me, I come from the Eastern Cape and therefore I'll always make an example. If we changed for those communities on tribal trust land and the president says have no land when he talks about the percentage of South Africans that have land, we give them title, they are able to contribute some of that land as capital to joint ventures with established agri-sector and other players in order to get access to national and global markets, we achieve several things. During the phase of in installing infrastructure, we've created employment opportunities and related, stimulated related business activity. We have ensured that the skills transfer. We have, we have changed, we have begun to change the patterns of asset, economic asset ownership uh, in the economy. And fourthly, what we are also able to do is to create further opportunities and bring public and private capital into that mix. But in order to do all of those things, you also need to get several things right because infrastructure contracts can't be an opportunity for looting as it happens. We also can't afford to have the kind of inefficiencies in government that we have because there is no time, the unemployment problem is serious but we also do have a lot that we can leverage. And finally, in that context, with the right policy formulation, with the right governance and other interventions, we would be able to also maybe adopt a further expansive view of monetary policy, because if the additional funds we borrow as a sovereign are going to be used appropriately in order to stimulate further economic activity and employment, it's all worth it. The difficulty right now is that the pressure that we're having is that we must borrow more money in order to give it as remittances to people who consume it on large monopolistic businesses anyway, such as airtime and so on. Doesn't solve our problem in the long term. That's my contribution. Thank you. Thank you. Tabile, let's, thank you so much. Uh, Tabile, let's grab you and then we'll go to Governor Mboweni. Tabile Sokupa. Uh, since Tabile is struggling with connection there, or we can't get Tabile. Governor Mboweni, hopefully you're still with us. You know, there's a great input, you know, from Isa, Mamkete, Songhez. I worry how much of texture is there in the political uh, setups, that they, especially with the uh, ruling party, uh, maybe even the other parties. You know, I mean, what kind of conversations do they have when they have closed-door meetings? We always get the final uh, outcome, and it never really quite... Uh, it, it, it doesn't get there. But anyway, uh, Governor Mboweni. Uh, uh, thank, th 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 thank you very much. Thank you so much. You know, one of the things that I did in my youth, for which I'm much grateful for, is that I combined my study of economics with politics. Uh, uh, now, uh, Sam, there's nothing called a ruling party. <laughs> oh, it's governing party. I'll let you, I'll let you. Because, because you've got yes. dinner to prepare for, I'll concede this government. There's no ruling party, it's a governing party. But you guys rule anyway, you don't govern. No, anyway. no, oh, no, no. Thank you, governor. The, the ANC doesn't rule Pretoria or Joburg or Cape Town or Western Cape. There's nothing called a ruling party. Political parties govern at the will of the people. Okay, governor, thank you. I will draw. <laughs> but but uh, King Muswati rules at the behest of the 
Eswatin royal family. That's a difference. Very important. Now, you know, uh, the advantage about uh, uh, being uh, long in politics is that you interact with many political leadership. Um, so, uh, President Paul Kagame invited me to be a member of the uh, African Union Reforms Team. Uh, what happened was that the African Union uh, political leadership appointed President Kagame to lead a process of reforming the African Union. And then President Kagame decided to uh, pull together a team of what he called the brightest Africans around Africa. I don't know whether he was correct about that. And uh, these nine brightest Africans he pulled together unfortunately included me. I, 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 I don't know how he came to the conclusion that I was amongst the ten brightest, nine brightest Africans on the African continent. But anyway, so at the first meeting, uh, we had a meeting, you know, the normal things, credentials, and, uh, so on, terms of reference, and so on. Then we had a tea break. So during the tea break, we all sort of uh, uh, around the President Kagame talking about this or that. And then I said to President Kagame, President, uh, I've been asked a question. Why am I lending my name to the work of a dictator? So there were all of us around. Can you imagine during the tea break, all of us sort of come around the, the leader of the pack. And so he looked at me. Uh, I said, no, the, the reason I'm asking you the question is because the people are asking me the question, you, Tito Mboen, are lending credibility to the work being done by a, a dictator. So I said, President, are you a dictator? You know, you could have seen the people around melting away, they disappeared. Eventually, it was the two of us <laughs> remaining in that conversation. And then he said, no, I'm not a dictator. And then he explained, and he explained. So at the end of it, I said, no, I understand um, the difficulties which your country had to go through. And now that you've explained to me that you won't be standing um, again as president and you'll be handing over power, it's fine with me. I'll work with you. I understand uh, everything you've explained to me. Uh, you have to work for a generation. A generation is defined as 30 years. And that, you know, you've molded a new generation of Rwandans uh, to take this country forward. And to cut a long story short, you know, I became very close uh, family friends with the family. When his daughter was being lobbered, he insisted that I must become part of the negotiating team. Um, and so I was negotiating there, but I, I had to have a translator next to me uh, because they were speak, speaking in uh, Guarantese, and I, I, I had to have somebody assisting me. In fact, very interesting story because at the end of the negotiations process, I said, how many cows did they bring or head of cattle? They said, no, they brought a calf, one. And they, they wanted to see whether this little calf 
could mix with President Kagame's uh, head of cattle. And when this thing was happy, jumping around and so on, they said, that's a deal. He's happy. Only one. At the end of the ceremony, he gave them a fully fledged head of cattle to take back with them. There was no money exchanged. It's not a monetary thing. It's a meeting cultural of two families. And at the wedding, the daughter insisted again that I must be at the wedding, so I had to fly to Kigali. I'm telling you this story to say that uh, uh, leadership matters. Leadership matters. Whether it's cultural, political, military, economic, whatever, it matters. And President Kagame, with all his weaknesses, I think, in my view, has proven to be a, a, a very good leader and, uh, um, uh, and so on. So I, I, I then suggest that, uh, you know, as a paper, and for yourself in particular, Sam, because you've got, you've had the experience of being in the public sector. You know, one of the things that we really take for granted is the impact of Bantu education on the current generation of people. How do you entrust a very complex portfolio um, um, and without examining the capacity and capability? And we must be honest with ourselves. You know, um, um, we need to accept that there are certain weaknesses brought upon us by the structure of Bantu education and apartheid repression. And we need to understand what in economics is called the transactional costs or transaction, no, 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 transitional costs as we move from one stage to another. They are transactional and transitional costs that we have to take into account. And some of those reside in capacity and capability, which we're going to talk about uh, again when we next meet. So I then uh, end my uh, intervention by uh, thanking all of you for your contributions. And I think this has been very good, be it about Songhezo and his uh, frustrations about the Eastern Cape. You know, the Eastern Cape... <laughs> Maybe Sam doesn't understand this, but so yes, would. The Eastern Cape was the heartland of African intellectual capability, you know? And how that has been allowed to erode over the years is beyond me to understand. It boggles the mind, the English people would say. Um, you know, in 1857, um, um, uh, Tio Soga graduated from Glasgow University in 1857. And after graduating and marrying a Scottish girl, that's why the, 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 uh, the uh, Soga people are the way they look. They, 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 there's a Scottish girl that's, that's involved. But on the way back on the boat, Hmm? Those days you, you didn't fly because we're not aeroplane, but he, he returned via the by a boat. In the boat, he wrote the the hymn Liza Lisa Itingalako. Now, if somebody graduated from Glasgow University in 1857, what excuse have we got? 
in 2021 that we don't employ people with capabilities in the public sector. How can you explain that? When in 1867, somebody graduated. So I think we need to take these things forward. And I invite all of you to come to Mahoba's group. Let's have a Mahoba's group conversation, which will result in the Mahoba's group minute, which will publish, which will be a, a clarion call. A clarion call for all South Africans with capabilities to rise to the occasion. But I thank you very much for this conversation. It has been wonderful. And I, I await your visit and the Mahoba's Group Minute thereafter. Thank you very much indeed. Governor, thank you so much. And you've been so kind and with your insights and time. And Isam Tlanga, Mamketil Jane, Songe Zozibi, Tebuho, Kas, Piti Akunget, Tundala, and a few others I tried to hand the mic to. Thank you for joining us on Politics Wednesday. We'll be back here next week, Wednesday, 7 p.m. Thank you very much and good evening.